Welcome to the King's Island Central Podcast. KICentral.com is King's Island's ultimate fan site. Now, here's your host, Robbie Zerhusen. This is King's Island Central Podcast, episode number 13. Joining me is Brad Perdue. Hello. And special guest, Bill Mefford. Hiya. So, Bill, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, let's see. Uh, I guess I'll start. I grew up in the area, uh, went to Wyoming High School, then went to the University of Arizona, Bear Down, Wildcats, and uh, was a journalism student there, graduated in journalism, actually got a plum job, was, was working for the uh, university in PR. Uh, which everybody in the graduating class wanted to do, and somehow I got it. But anyway, uh, from there, I went to UPI, National News Service, which is like Associated Press, but it was much bigger back then. And uh, eventually came home to Cincinnati uh, with the Blue Cross and Blue Shield plans. I was there for about nine years as a manager, I think the youngest manager in the system of 75 Blue Cross and Blue Shield plans. From there, I went to an ad agency and in downtown Cincinnati and uh, got a call from, said, hey, how'd you like to work at Kings Island? And I said, yeah, that's, that wouldn't be too bad. I kind so of always wanted to work there, but back then, hard to believe, but my hair was too long and everything and they had all these grooming standards, but so. Finally, I cut my hair and said, sure, I'll work there. So what year did you start at Kittens Island? Uh, I'm going to say the end of 81, like August of 81. And what was your title when you started? Uh, manager of Marketing Communications, which is basically public relations or dealing with the news media for all the you know, trying to get coverage for Kings Island, all the big events we had and that type of thing. So do you consider yourself a roller coaster enthusiast? Yeah, yeah. In fact, one of my takeaways uh, of what are the, you know, three greatest things that I remember about Kings Island right at the top of the list is the beast. Because you got to remember this was uh, early 80s the beast was the king. It was, uh, yeah. it was the biggest, baddest, faster wooden coaster there was. It had this aura and magic about it. It was all through the woods and dodging trees and a special experience at nighttime. Uh, so I was blown away by the beast. I just thought it was fantastic. I loved it. And that kind of started my love of roller coasters. I hadn't ridden as many as a lot of people but i do think i've ridden i think i toted up one time about 75 of them on uh at least two different continents well that's still a pretty good number yeah it was fine i mean you know i didn't set out to to do it it just happened because <laughs> i love the theme parks and going to theme parks and amusement parks and everything right well, what we're going to do in the interview is we will start at the year 1982, since that's when your, your first year you started there, and go through some of the historical changes that took place at the park and get your take on these items and your thoughts. I, I mean, 
I had dined and gone to heaven. Uh, can you imagine starting at Kings Island in 1982, the 10th anniversary year? We <laughs> did five different things that year, all requiring great PR to work with the news media. Mm-hmm. And I got to do it all. I First of all, I worked with, uh, we opened Hanna-Barbera Land. So we flew in Bill Hanna and Joe Barbera and I emceed the whole event and it was huge. And we had tons of kids. When we cut the ribbon, they just screamed and ran into Hanna-Barbera Land. It was incredible. Yeah. Um, and that year we also uh, turned the racer around backwards, which was revolutionary back then. Uh, we opened the Fest House. We uh, opened Timberwolf Amphitheater, had great concerts. I think we had at least a dozen concerts, beautiful mm-hmm. summer. Um, and then we launched Winterfest. So it was what a year to, you know, join an organization. Right. Incredible. Well, let's break that down a little bit. Let's ask about the happy land of Hanna-Barbera land was renamed to Hanna-Barbera land. Why? take off the happy land uh don't really know i mean that you know (laughs) i don't think that was our decision probably it was passed down to corporate for whatever reasons they had and i i don't know their thinking on it honestly Hmm. i guess it's just shorter and easier and and i think the plan was if this uh went well to open a series of hanna Barrel lands across the country. Oh, wow. And uh, uh, that didn't really happen. We opened one in Houston a couple years later, and uh, that's not even there anymore. There's a water park there now or something. But uh, anyway, that was a good experience, too. Mm-hmm. So, what was it like to open up Timberwolf? Say again. What was it like to open up the Timberwolf Amphitheater with introducing concerts at the park? That was incredible. That really was. It just so happened that the night we opened was an incredible night with a summer night with a huge moon. Everything was perfect. Uh, As I recall, the first group was Air Supply, who I don't know if people even know today who that is, but back in the early 80s, they were they were pretty hot and uh it was a great group to have. And then we had, you know, at least a dozen concerts that year. The Go-Go's who were hot, the Beach Boys. And uh, part of the job was kind of fun. We would meet them if they would want to go on the beach, for example. We would, you know, take them behind the scenes and then get them a ride on the beach, which is, which was fun. So... Was it advertised? How was it on the PR side to um, get Timberwolf out there and let people know, hey, come see this big concert venue? It was great. I mean, there weren't that many, as I recall, concert facilities in the area back then. Mm-hmm. This was a 10,000 seat outdoor arena. And, uh, it was wonderful. I mean, um, we had a chance to bring in acts that uh, were hot at the time. They might not have been the 
A-list acts, but they weren't far from it. They were B-plus acts, you know. Right. And uh, it was great. I remember the Beach Boys did so good that our general manager uh, approached them about playing the next night. And they said, we, we have a gig in Pittsburgh. We can't. And he bought out the Pittsburgh gig so they could stay. Oh, my. And, and <laughs> perform the second night. That's how big they were when they... You know, so really, was at the time admission to see a concert just park um, admission or was there an additional fee or separate fee? Well, we, uh, for whatever reason, depending on the concert and, you know, how big the name was or whatever, sometimes it was included in admission and sometime there would be an upcharge. But as I recall, the upcharge was very little. Yeah, maybe a buck or two bucks at the most, as I recall. Right. But well, we talked about name changes earlier. Screaming Demon was renamed to the Demon. Do you know why that name change happened? I don't, and that was actually before my time. Oh, okay. One of the most memorable changes that happened in 1982 that's still talked about today is one of the trains was turned around on the racer for the backwards racer. Yeah. How was that received by park guests at the time? Well, I think there were probably some, though, with little trepidation. Like, scientifically, how can you do this? <laughs> you know, <laughs> and the fact is that, you know, the cars will go frontwards or backwards, you know, on the same track. But, uh, then it became really, really popular and it was so refreshing. I mean, how nutty is that? You know, the think about that back in the eighties, the idea of turning around a roller coaster and having it going backwards. Mm -hmm. And it was a PR person's dream. We <laughs> had so much national, national PR news media coming out for it. And anyway, back in that time, there were so many more opportunities for good stories because there were shows, all station had sort of puff piece, half hour shows, like PM Magazine was a big one. That was in every city surrounding us. So we had opportunities to work live or taped with uh, all the PM crews, then there was a national PM magazine crew. And this story was nutty enough and everything for them to come out and cover it. And everybody did, it was incredible publicity. Hmm. So lastly, that we wanna talk about 1982, um, you extended the season into the holidays with opening of Winterfest. Yeah. What challenges, if any, were there to convince guests to visit Kings Island in the winter? Well, <laughs> there were a couple, but I got to tell you, it was incredible. We did a media preview the night before opening, and we had 1,500 people. That's a lot of people for a media preview. Mm -hmm. And uh, I remember, I think we started about five o'clock in the afternoon and it was like 83 degrees and and 
the fountain wouldn't freeze. The, the big centerpiece of Winterfest was ice skating on the fountain. Mm. Right. And it wouldn't freeze because it was 80 some degrees. I was in a three piece suit and a tie because I emceed it and was sweating all over. And I told <laughs> the media as they came in the door, we're going to give them snorkels instead of uh, ice skates. But it all turned out well. The shows were great, very convivial atmosphere. But one of the things you always run into with Winterfest is wintertime. I mean, it was an outdoor event and you know, when it got cold, it was cold. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember we shot a movie there called Fresh Horses with some of the hottest actors of the era. Um, and I think it was probably Ben Stiller's first movie. People really don't remember that he was even in that, but he did have a part in that. <laughs> but it was Molly Ringwald and Andrew McCarthy. Man, they were hot back then. My daughter was a young teenager, and I, I brought her out to Kings Island to meet them. And they, she and a bunch of her girlfriends, and <laughs> to meet Andrew McCarthy, and they were in hog heaven. And so I got them in the movie and put skates on them. There was a scene where everybody was skating, so I got my daughter and her girlfriends to skate around the uh, fountain, and they ended up in the movie just fun that's neat but Winterfest what a what a wonderful event oh man just a great event and it was so popular um it was just everything about it all the lights and just the feeling you had and I always know when something's going to be really popular when the media started asking me for tickets and they, the phones rang all the time asking for tickets for Winterfest for their families. Oh. Great event. So I assume uh, the PR and the expectation of the attendance for Winterfest in, in its first year exceeded it, the expectations? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> for sure. For sure. Was, was there a planned amount of attendance for that first year? I mean, there is uh, in in the industry for every day. Actually, that's you know, people think, "Oh, what a fun industry!" You guys really don't have to work. And I say, you know, pardon me, but <laughs> you should try the industry sometimes. There's a deadline every hour that you have to meet with people in the park, and if and if it doesn't meet up to the expectations. You know, phones start ringing and, and people ask them why, why aren't more people there? What's the reason, you know? And mm-hmm. uh, it's, it's a fairly intense business, honestly. Um, but I was so fortunate. One of my three takeaways, one was the beast. Second was the 10th anniversary year and how incredible that was for my first year. And thirdly is the people. Back in the 80s, King's Island was it. King's Island was the golden child. It was the benchmark. Other theme parks and amusement parks came to King's Island, I remember that summer, to see what we were doing because we were always doing something different, new, first. Um, And it really was the best seasonal theme park on the planet. It was unbelievable. 
And part right. of that was the staff we had. And you, you really have to get along because it's an intense business and you're thrown together for a summer. Everybody else is taking summer vacations or, you know, you're working weekends, nights, and it just when everybody else is out having fun and it just goes on and on. So you have to have good people. And man, we had, it was rocking back in the early eighties. We had the best, best people in, in all the positions, you know, and right. that's one of my takeaways from working there was the people were incredible, professional, helpful, and, uh, they got it. They got it. And, uh, we just, you're thrown together and you have to work together or you're not going to succeed. It's simple as that. And uh, it was really cool. So Fest House was used at Winterfest that first year. And then was there any big unveiling of it or a grand opening in 83? Oh, yeah. We had <laughs> uh, somebody, I don't believe it was me. Uh, came up the idea of making the uh, Eiffel Tower like the world's largest Christmas tree and put lights on it. And I said, well, to open this thing, why don't we have this great big lever, which we made up, our carpenters made up. And this is what I mean about working together. You know, a week ahead of time, I say, guys, we need this great big switch with an off and on that Santa Claus can uh, move on and all the lights will light up on the tree. And that's what happened. It was very memorable. It was so cool. Santa pulls a lever and all of a sudden there's a spark and like a, a firework, it goes from the lever, from the on off switch all the way up. You see this firework go all the way up to the top of the tree and then row after row after row of lights lighting the tree. It was spectacular. And uh, I think they've done it uh, every year since, probably when they've had Winterfest. It's been an off and on event, but uh, you know, that first time, what a way to launch it. It was so much fun. It was beautiful. That's cool. All right, well, let's touch on May 13th, 1983. And that's the day a 17-year-old man fell to his death from a restricted area of the Eiffel Tower. He's referred to today as Tower Johnny. Now, we don't want to go into the details of the tragedy because that's, you know, been discussed a bunch. And our condolences go out to the family. But how did it impact park employees? Because obviously they don't want to see anyone hurt and or worse in this case at the park, um, how did the, the park employees deal with this and the PR? It was tough. Um, from a PR standpoint, a lot of people don't know this. This is unbelievable. This is how ironic it was. That weekend, we were hosting Associated Press writers from all over the Midwest and country. Associated Press can push one finger if the story goes worldwide in an instant. Mm -hmm. So we're hosting them. And earlier in the day, they were, we, we Kings Island PR department had a luncheon for them. We sponsored a luncheon for AP 
and brought Yogi and Scooby and everybody to luncheon and they really appreciated that. So that night, I literally have one foot on the platform and one foot in the beast car. I was going to take a nighttime ride on the beast with a guy from AP mm-hmm. and they're all over the park because this is their national convention. <laughs> so wow. we have all the associated press reporters and management right there in the park. And my marketing director at the time, Bob Schultz walks up and says, uh, Hey, Matt, you better get over the tower. Something's happened. So I did and found out, you know, what was happening as far as we knew. Right. And yeah, that took, uh, that was hard to deal with. Of course it, uh, it did affect the employees. I feel because it would, you know, right. Particularly again, how professional the staff was and how important safety is to them. And this appeared to be a mark against that, although it was nobody's fault really. Um, and of course, eventually, I must say AP was good to us, uh, but other outlets, um, of course, that's it, a pretty big story naturally. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think it was, a, I was at least two days at the park without ever going home. I had a couch in my office and I slept on that because wow. the phone would not stop ringing from the media. Right. So it was a sad situation and it certainly was memorable for me because, uh, you know, I had to deal directly with the news media. It was a tough thing to do. I bet. So is there already a, let's call it a disaster plan strategy in place in case a tragedy such as that happened that you could kind of work off that playbook or were you kind of feeling your way through it? Uh, we had developed one. Uh, that's one of the first things I did actually. And we operated off that. And ironically, I guess the industry back then, by the way, hard to believe now there were parks, many parks that didn't even have PR people. They didn't understand the need for PR people to get the word out or to handle a crisis situation. So there was nothing in the industry. And what happened, uh, Dennis Spiegel from International Theme Parks asked if I would put together a crisis communications step-by-step procedure and plan that he could share with all the parks. And it became kind of the industry standard and I actually put that together. Wow. So yeah, we did have a, uh, we did have a plan and the plan worked, but <laughs> you could imagine in situations like that, all hell breaks loose, you know, right. You just got to stick to the plan as much as you can. So how hard was it in your role dealing with the media and such to maintain your composure and not go of too many emotions or show too many emotions? Difficult. But, you know, at the same point, in the back of my mind, I kept saying, you know, this is why they're paying you. 
my feeling is anybody can do, this is a simplification and probably not true, but anybody can do the big event, you know, turning a racer around or launching Winterfest or whatever. Those are natural PR things. Uh, I felt that I got paid for the crisis situations. Nobody else wants to go on camera in those situations. And I felt in my heart, that's why they were paying me to do that. So I didn't do it with any trepidation at all. I just uh, felt, and I also, this is unusual in today's media. I also uh, wanted to be honest. I didn't want to lie about anything. So when you go from there, when you're telling the truth as much as you can, there's a certain confidence level you have because you know, you know, a lie, you'll get caught up and it'll come back to bite you, you know, right. Always does. So I had that confidence going in and I had the confidence of knowing this is what I'm getting paid for. So, uh, and we had, I have to say, through times like this, we earned our stripes with the news media. We earned credibility and there's no greater thing for a PR person to have than credibility with the news media. So they always treated us right because we treated them professionally, answered their questions, uh, you know, and they respected that. Right. So in December of 83, Taft Broadcasting sold the part to the newly founded King's Entertainment Company. Did that impact your the way you did your job at all, or how was the transition at the park? Uh, as far as I could tell, great. They were super. It was a leverage buyout. It's called King's Entertainment Company or Kiko <clears throat> by former Taft executives. It was great. They were smart people. They were caring people. And from my point of view, they understood and loved PR. That's sometimes hard to find. They got it. They got it. So, you know, uh, I worked closely with the top executives and, and uh, we did a lot of good things. I love the Kiko management. They were, they were just super. And they, they, uh, were so aggressive in the industry that uh, they looked around to expand internationally. And that excited me. Uh, I thought that that would be perhaps an opportunity for me, but anytime you add a park, all of a sudden there's a ripple effect of jobs opening and, and people getting opportunity. and, And that did happen for me we ended up uh, opening a park called Australia's Wonderland in Sydney, Australia. And I was part of a team of six of us, I believe, that went down there to open it up, went down a year or more ahead of time to prepare and then did a grand opening and then, uh, you know, run the park, which unfortunately no longer exists. And it was a fun park. It was a good park. Uh, I guess there were some problems because it didn't meet what the projections were. 
However, the projections were based on U.S. parks. And one of the lessons learned, I think, from the Kiko people is that you cannot, at least back then, uh, everything American is not everything Australian. They're different. <laughs> and, uh, and uh, you know, I'm not sure the site was the right site. We had 13 different sites, and I think we put it in the worst possible place. Um, it was uh, in Sydney's west, which is perceived by everybody else in Sydney, the residents of Sydney Siders, as they're called, as being hot and far away and dusty and blowflies, which are flies that <laughs> they will just jump on you. You can swat them away all you want, but they'll jump on you and get in your eyes and your nose and everything else. They, they, uh, and that was the image of how it was out West. Mm -hmm. In reality, the park was really cool and really pretty and uh, probably did not have enough product to open with. We needed more product. Um, but we had, we had a, you know, an outdoor concert venue there. It wasn't like Timberwolf. I mean, didn't even have seats. You stood or brought a blanket, but, you know, uh, Australia has a lot of good groups, um, particularly back then in the 80s. And we had them out at Australia's Wonderland, did the special events, had some good rides. Um, so it was a great experience. Nice. Well, let's jump to 1984. So going into the 1984 season, a new stand-up roller coaster from Japanese firm Togo, King Cobra, opened an adventure at Village. Yep. How do you convince people to ride a new concept roller coaster that has you riding standing up <laughs> with an inversion? You know, again, one of those crazy world-first things that King's Island was doing back then. And, uh, you know, I suppose there's coaster creatures that look forward to riding anything, no matter what it is. And, and I think King Cobra certainly had that. Um, mm -hmm. it was, uh, it was a fun coaster. I, I, yeah, I opened that. That's right. I emceed that event. And then shortly thereafter went to Australia. So, uh, I did get to ride it a couple of times. I enjoyed it a lot. I thought it was fun. Um, but, you know, I don't think it took too much selling, if you will, to get the public to accept it. I mm -hmm. think it, it was pretty popular, like most coasters, when it opened up. So the public that rode the ride, did they really enjoy it? I think so. That's my recollection. Again, I was there, I think only a week or two after the whole, I did the media preview and, and bid everybody farewell and, uh, and went to Australia. But uh, I think so. I think it was well accepted. It so I, I, I guess I have a question of how many people were in guest services wondering why you guys put a, a ride in like this where you stand up and is dangerous. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I think it's just things that we did back then. We did things that uh, other people hadn't thought of, you know, mm -hmm. and uh, 
it was another world's first and uh it was great so when it comes to marketing a roller coaster were you on your own to do it or did kings island hire help for you to do that or was was it all you uh it was all us was all us we had uh uh in the pr department we had uh me and two people that reported to me. And then during the summer, we would have two interns. And so that roughly five of us that would handle, come up with the idea, what are we gonna do? How are we gonna launch it? You know, what's the timetable? How are we gonna get the media in and out, give them rides, all that kind of stuff that goes into it. How are we gonna feed them? We're going to give them a gift, you know, all that type of thing. And uh, that was all on our own, which is, I look back and that's so funny. There was five of us handling this madhouse of media that, that uh, you know, loved to report on roller coasters. Not all of them loved to ride it, but they loved to report on people riding it. And uh, I think back to, so there were five of us. And at one, one year I worked at Universal Studios and uh, for putting together the grand opening in Orlando. And there was a PR staff of 35 people. And at Gigs Island to open our coasters, we had five people. I couldn't, I didn't know what to do with 35 people. Was, but anyway, uh, so we would pretty much come up with the ideas and execute it ourselves. And we couldn't have done it without, believe me, the cooperation of operations and rides people and all those people, we made their life miserable because they had to come in early, stay late, do special things that's normally not on their schedule. And there are great people in operations like uh, Don Miller and others that got it. They understood Frank Thompson, may rest in peace, but they, they got it and understood how important PR was to the park. And they, they threw themselves and their departments in it wholeheartedly and make sure it was a great success. Right. So did you, um, did you, you said earlier that you left after launching King Cobra? Uh-huh. So that's when you went to Australia's Wonderland? Yep. Yep. And went then you returned back to Kings Island in 1987? Correct. And so you were there to open Vortex? Uh, yep. And Boy. so what was your role in that? Did, did you do all the marketing for that you, as well? You know, I, I wasn't there for the launch of it. I was still transitioning either in Australia or on the way back. Somebody mm-hmm. else did the media preview for that, as I recall. I don't believe I did the media preview for Vortex. But gotcha. when I got back on site, it was it was up and running, and I thought, that's a pretty neat coaster. <laughs> and again, it was a first. I think it was a first, like, coaster, steel coaster with seven loops or something like that. And uh, just another one of those coasters that Kings Island was uh, – was launching. So how many people thought it was the bat? Thought it was the best? The bat. 
like oh. you didn't really do anything from the bat. <laughs> I love the bat. It was. And this is the bat. They just did some work on it, and here it is yeah. again. I mean, was, was there a lot of confused guests that didn't know what they were writing? Uh, I don't know about that. I mean, that's hard to say. I don't think so. Um, they knew all the stories about the bat coming, coming gone. Uh, and a new coaster was going to be not exactly taking his place, but a new coaster was going to make its debut. The bat was cool. I liked it. That was a great coaster. It just didn't work real good. So, so at, at oh, sorry, Robbie. On that subject, how was it from a PR standpoint dealing with the bat and its operational issues and being open and then closed? Yeah, it was tough. Um, again, the sexiness of a roller coaster, the media loves. So if it's good news or bad news, they want to cover it because it's a roller coaster and the aura about it. Uh, that was tough. There was a lot of questions and, you know, I don't think at first we had a lot of answers because you got to study the situation, you know, and have experts come in and look at it and what have you. And, and that was, it was tough, but, you know, again, part of the job, you just, it's uh, nothing necessarily we did wrong. Uh, it just was a design flaw kind of, mm -hmm ate itself up as it was running. Right. I think there, uh, you know, there's an urban myth out there. I think that somebody died on the bat and I don't believe that happened. And if it d did, I don't, I would have known certainly, I think. <laughs> and uh, that never happened. That's just one of the yeah, actually on our, uh, on our page for the bat on KI central, uh, we have it listed out that no serious injuries happened and no deaths <laughs> occurred. Yep. Contrary to all the talk, but, you know, Vortex had been sinking for 30 years as well and before yep. it got removed. Right. So how does the park deal with those type of rumors? I mean, there, it's really hard to smash them, but what can the park do on their end to help deal with that? Well, uh, we would in advance anticipate the tough questions uh, and the rumors, and we would develop a white paper or a paper uh, with questions and answers. Mm -hmm. And again, I thought it was part of my job to answer them mm -hmm. as well as we knew things. And, uh, and that's what we did. And, uh, you know, it's tough. Nobody likes to do that, but Hey, that's what I got paid for. So right. Do it. Hmm. So in 1988, Amazon falls opens a water ride in the adventure village area of the park. What was it, the differences in marketing a water ride versus marketing a roller coaster? You know, it kind of had the same vibes because even though it wasn't a coaster, the fact that this boat goes down and this tremendous spray goes out and sprays everybody within 
X number of feet of it. And some people willingly running to that spot so they could get absolutely doused with water. That'd be my children. (laughs) You know, you talking about the news media and something visual, and that certainly is visual, that big boat coming down, the huge spray of water, people laughing, getting soaked. So as I recall, it was a lot of, a lot of fun and, and, no, it wasn't a roller coaster, but it still was a new ride, and it was a very visual ride for the television media. So after 1988, uh, what did you do after you left Kings Island in 88? Um, let's see. What did I do? I uh, Actually, I guess that's when I went to Universal Studios. I got a call about this uh, giant theme park in uh, Orlando and said there was an opening for vice president of public relations. And I said, sure, I'll do that. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> Oh, actually I went first, I went from Kings on, I went to corporate on the radio and television side. At that point, we were owned by Carl Linder and American financial and they had the radio TV side, which was huge, one of the mm-hmm. biggest in the country. And uh, so I went there for, I guess I was there, I don't know, six, seven months, I'm, as I recall, and then got the call about Universal and theme parks always kind of being in my blood. I said, yeah. So I went down there, um, started planning the opening, did a bunch of PR stuff uh, leading up to opening and um, wasn't crazy about the people, honestly. And so uh, at some point, even before grand opening, even though I had a part in planning all of it, um, I resigned and came back to Cincinnati and started my own public relations company and I had known so many people in the business from my Kings Island days and so forth mm-hmm. that uh, I came back on a Friday. And by Monday morning, I had five clients, um, including uh, Q102 and 55KRC and Channel 12, all, of course, that I <laughs> was vice president of months prior and uh, Coney Island and so forth. So hit the ground running. And uh, I I did that for, uh, well, I've done it that I still have my own company and have done in the past work for lots of uh, theme parks, water parks and family entertainment centers. Uh, And in a way do that today. I'm a little bit semi-retired, but I do help out Entertainment Junction in Westchester, great people there, donators and many former Kings Island people there, by the way. There's gotta be eight or nine or more (laughs) former Kings Island people. So you know that place is run with quality and guest services and all that type of thing. Right. And I did work for Coney Island for years and, and other clients as well. Did you ever work for a Hershen Park? Uh, I did when I owned my own company, uh, I got a call from somebody I knew from Kings Island who had moved to 
um, I'm going to say Wild Adventures, I think that's the name of it, uh -huh. uh, in Valdosta, Georgia, and wanted me to come down and do some programs for them, some PR, and uh, which I did. And I enjoyed that. I thought it was a nice little park that probably not a lot of people knew. I didn't know much about it at all. Right. It's funny. It's outside of Valdosta, and you, you take a country road, and you think, where is this taking me? And all of a sudden, over a rise, there's a, a theme park on the right-hand side of the road. And uh, it's a nice little park. It had some nice rides. It had uh, an animal section. Uh, and I think Hershen had only taken over a year or two before I worked there one summer for a short period of time. All right. Although, oh, that's right. We filmed the movie Zombieland there with uh, Woody Harrelson, and it was great. That was incredible. Most of it was shot at nighttime, but uh, that is one thing that was pretty cool about the park. But they ran a good park, and uh, it did well, and I assume probably still is, and uh, it was a good park. Right? Nothing but good things to say about that. Well, on the subject of Hershend, uh, what do you think about their partnership with Kentucky Kingdom? Well, I think it's good. I think Hershend has, who are <laughs> the top executives are mostly former Kings Island people. Yeah. And uh, so they know how to run a good theme park. Um, so they'll They'll study it, I'm sure, and make enhancements, put in rides that they think should go in. And I think they'll do a good job because they're a bunch of professional people and they know what they're doing. Right. So I, I would think all good things ahead for them. Well, that's good. I, I know we got a lot of um, Kentucky Kingdom fans who are also on KI Central, so... Yeah, well, I think they'll, if, if I know those people like I think I do and I work with all of them, um, they're, they're pros. They'll do the right thing. They'll do the good things. So have you done any work for Kings Island since Cedar Fair took over the park? Um, I had started as a full-time consultant with Kings Island when I had my own business. And by full-time consultant, it was 40 hours. Well, I was just like a full-time employee. I had my own office there. Oh, wow. 40 hours a week. I mean, I was just like a full-time employee, except they paid me a fee for being there and doing that. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I helped uh, put together their public relations efforts including hiring the legend Jeffrey Siebert, which was, uh, I knew him from the time that I did work for Americana, the Swordsville Lake Amusement Park. Jeffrey was there and I met him. So when I became a consultant for Kings Island and they were looking for somebody in PR, I said, you got to meet this guy. He is uh, incredible. And uh, so we hired Jeffrey and things took off from there. 
And we're trying to get him on the show as well. So, Oh, he'd be great. <laughs> He's unbelievable. He, he knows every coaster in the world and every bolt. And he just knows everything about every park. He's so smart. So you were working for Kings Island when Cedar Fair took over. Did oh, yeah. Paramount hire you or did Cedar Fair hire you? Uh, Paramount. And actually, when Cedar Fair took over, I only worked one year for them. And after the year, they actually said they didn't need my consultant services anymore. They're going to handle everything internal. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that came from the other parks because none of the other parks had a built-in consultant. Gotcha. And they're wondering, hey, what's this guy doing? Why does Kings Island get that? We don't get that, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. So Cedar Fair said, adios, dude. Then, you know, that was fine. I, <laughs> I started working, doing a lot of work for Coney Island, which I enjoy. And uh, many others I did, you know, I would get calls to put together marketing programs, the PR programs, what have you, from people that were opening parks in China and, and uh, other places, England. So I got quite a bit of work through my, I guess, exposure, Kings Island. So I was always happy for that. Kings Island opens a lot of doors for a lot of people in a lot of industries. Right. Are there any other stories you'd like to share about your time at Kings Island that maybe none of us would know? Um, We're always looking to um, learn something new. Yeah. Um, You know, nothing really comes to mind too much i just keep thinking of the people that uh come and go and and uh how great they were it was and again my takeaway it was the golden age i was so fortunate it was a golden age of king's island it was it was rocking and rolling it was the big mama Mm. it was everything and uh I used to say, you can't walk out on the street and find a neighbor or a family member that doesn't have somebody who's worked for Kings Island. The effect it has in the community when you're high on three or 4,000 people every summer, you know somebody that's working for Kings Island. I mean, you know, right. it just reaches into the community like that's incredible. What was your favorite attraction to market during your time there the beast for sure beast yeah just the aura of it the legend of it uh we had the good fortune i already mentioned that back then there were all these tv programs looking for fluff pieces that's the way a lot of tv programs were built back then and we had a guy who worked from the irs named Carl Eichelman, who rode the beast over and over and over again. You know, the fact that he worked for the IRS just adds that much more to the fun story. Right. Here's this guy gets back in line, runs all day long, rides the beast and the beast. And 
I think he got up to 4,000 rides and, uh, and then I don't know if he continued or not, but um, that was, that was so much fun just doing that and working with national media on this goofy story. Mm -hmm. And back then we had one of the people that worked in, uh, I guess it was called guest services was uh, Garnett Boothby, the red, white, and blue lady. And everything she had was red, white, and blue. Everything she wore, her car, her everything in her home was mm -hmm. red, white, and blue. And of course, we got tons of national exposure on that. All these media outlets I was talking about, they were just, we want to cover that. You know, how, how goofy or different is that? Right. And then we had Don Helbig riding the racer, like Carl was riding the beast. Don was riding the racer and right. he could get more rides on the racer. So he surpassed Carl Eichelman <laughs> on the beast. And, uh, I don't even know what he's still riding it today. So I don't know how many rides he's up to, but I'm sure it's five or 6,000. Oh, he's way above that. <laughs> yeah. I don't, I don't want to say for sure, because I don't know, but I think, uh, please don't quote me. I think it's near 17,000. Oh, oh I was going to say close to 12. Uh, I might be off on here, but you know, it, it's in, it's above 10,000 for sure. <laughs> I just said, that's incredible. And now that I think of that's one of the national shows I was talking about back in the eighties, where's a show called that's incredible. And uh, <laughs> they came to the park for Carl, for Don, for Garnet Boothby. And, uh, and, I, and I apologize to Don for not having this number off the top of my head. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm sure he would know. <laughs> oh yeah. He knows his numbers, <laughs> but bless him we got so much pr out of him and and you know it took those people being really good being cooperative uh being good on camera knowing the right things to say that mm. is good and both carl and don and garnett boothby the red white blue lady all were that way so it was a pleasure. It made our job so much easier. It was a pleasure to work with them because they knew what the media was all about. We would work with them, of course, and and make them understand what was going to happen and what likely the questions that were going to be asked and so forth. Right. But uh, I was blessed, and again, in many ways, of having great people to work with. Well, anything else you would like to share with us before we close? I don't think so. I think we covered some ground, fellas. Yeah, we did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> some history covered here and learned a lot. Yeah. yeah. Well, thanks for taking time out of your busy schedule to chat with us. Oh, thank you guys, really. Anything that uh, involves uh, the theme park industry and Kings Island, I'm, I'm all for Thank you for listening to the Kings Island Central podcast. KICentral.com is Kings Island's ultimate fan site. For more discussion about Kings Island and other amusement parks, join us over at KICentral.com.